following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. surveying and studying the life of God's servant David. We've brought him through many trials and hard times of his years of his 20s, and that in his early 30s he came finally to be the king of all Israel. And so now we see one of the first acts that he declares must be done to establish his new capital at Jerusalem. I read from 2 Samuel chapter 6. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000, and David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. They carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had burst forth against Uzzah, and that place is called Perez Uzzah, or bursting forth against Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but he took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of a horn. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out of the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent David had pitched for it, 
and they offered peace offerings and burnt offerings before the Lord. When David had finished offering the burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts and distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, and a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed each to his house. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself before the eyes of his servants, his female servants, as one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. And David said to Michael, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me as prince over Israel, the people of the Lord, that I will make merry before the Lord. I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes, but by the female servants of whom you have spoken, by them I shall be held in honor. And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. This is the word of God. I believe most of the knowledge that most people have about the biblical Ark of the Covenant comes from you know where. A movie made, can you believe, 35 years ago already with Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I would think a majority of you have seen this film at some time, although some may not have. But in this film, the Ark of God in the 1930s was captured by Nazi Germany because they believed it would be a a talisman, a token that they could take into battle and vanquish their enemies. And of course, the great climactic scene was when the Nazis opened the ark and looked into it. And that incredible special effect of several men's faces literally melting off of their bodies as a whirlwind of disaster was unleashed. Well, that movie had gross biblical inaccuracies, and yet it it did make a right point. The ark of God was a holy object, an object that God had ordered to be made, consecrated unto him to represent his tremendous power and presence with people. It was not a box in which God lived, but it was a symbol of God's holy presence and the fact that he is to be revered, not only with godly fear, but even with great joy. Now, 2 Samuel 6 tells about literally thousands of Israelites and all their instruments uniting with David to make a great procession as they bring the ark of God up to Jerusalem that is now the capital city of the kingdom, the central place that it remained and and does remain in some ways down to this present day. And David was thereby saying, I want the presence of God and the blessing of God to be upon this kingdom that he has made me king to rule over. And so this was a first priority act that he did as king. The account, though, of Uzzah touching the ark and dying on the spot becomes a strange thing to some people, but we should see it as a passage that is instructive 
about Christian worship. 2 Samuel 6 teaches that worship is not a do-it-yourself enterprise where anything that you in sincerity offer to God is equally acceptable to Him. It tells us that worship is God-ordained. It has principles that God puts upon it and asks us to satisfy and obey. And there's nothing more important in our lives than that we should know how God intends to meet us in worship and fulfill His promises to be the God of His people. I'm going to highlight three principles that come out of this this morning. First of all, the pain of ignoring God's worship instruction. Secondly, passionate joy displayed before the Lord. And thirdly, worship before an audience of one. Now, first of all, the emphasis falls on what we would call the otherness of God, the all about God that He is and we are not. And that's symbolized in the ark. The ark is to be considered as a set-apart, sacred object. Not that its wood and its gold are, are somehow divine in and of themselves as a physical object. But that object, made by God's design and God's instruction, represents the otherness, the holiness of God. And so we see here in the first place the pain of ignoring God's worship instructions. If you're interested, you could go back to Exodus 25 to hear about the Ark of the Covenant being built. God gave specific instructions through Moses how it was to be done, the exact size and design of it. It was a box made of particular wood, not so very large. It contained, as you might remember, the tablets of the law given to Moses. It contained the rod of the staff of Aaron, and it contained a jar of manna, some of the manna that God had supplied in the wilderness. That was 500 years before the time of David. So this is already an ancient artifact in the day of, of uh, David. And the whole thing was overlaid with gold, and on the top of it, perhaps you can picture the two sculpted winged cherubim with their wings extending towards the center and, and not quite touching. And the Lord says, in fact, our text here, verse 2, affirms that God had said that He sits enthroned above the cherubim. Again, not strictly to be understood in the physical, spatial sense that there was God contained in that space and nowhere else. But he was saying, when you come to this object, when you look upon this thing, I want you to think of me reigning in your midst and being present in your midst in power and in the intent of blessing. God uses other physical objects and other places in Scripture that he calls sacred places that are to remind us of him. It's a little bit of a different thought, but I was thinking about my wife and myself in the early days of our courtship. Some of you know we met in high school, so we were quite young. And I remember a local park uh, that my wife was immediately knowing what I'm talking about, where we used to go to walk and talk. It was a small park that had a lake, and there were ducks there that you could feed. And to our sort of fascination, this beautiful little park wasn't really used that much by other people. So if you you wanted a private, relatively private place that didn't have big crowds. You could go and walk on trails there and, and just have this, this quiet green place to meet together. And we often did that. 
And I, I think that as I recall it, that was probably the place where we first discussed the idea of marriage. Uh, there was no get down on my knees to propose. I never did that formally that I can remember. But I do remember regarding that park as sort of our place, if you will. And even today, it, it kind of represents our relationship in, in my mind. Well, that's a similar idea to the fact that wherever this ark was, was a place for Israel to rendezvous with God. And it marked a sacred place. God wasn't in the box. God didn't need to be transported around by the box. But God said, let this remind you that I am present. I am holding rendezvous with you. Now, of course, the part that people get really worked up about in 2 Samuel 6 is the death of Uzzah, of course. And people read this, and maybe as I read it, if it somehow is new to you, you were struck in your mind and thought, how absolutely unfair. Here's this poor fellow Uzzah just doing what the king wants him to do, bringing the ark up, putting it on the cart, trying to give it safe conduct. It looks like it's slipping off the cart as the oxen stumble. He just does the thing for which he probably should have got a medal. And he died because he touched the ark. How unfair and arbitrary is God? I hope that's not your reaction. Because what this passage reminds me of is another aspect of myself. I'm using personal illustrations today, but then this is something uh, that my wife will tell you I'm actually quite famous for. The fact that I am habitually scornful of the necessity of instruction manuals. If we go out and buy any new appliance or gadget or something for the home, you know, and some assembly required, okay? You've got to bring it home. Famous words, some assembly required. Well, you get out your screwdriver and you put the thing together. And, and my usual attitude is, look, engineers write those manuals. They don't know how to speak English. I don't understand what they're going to say, so I'll figure it out. And I don't go to the manual until I'm completely stuck and the thing won't go together and it won't work. And my wife says, you think you could read the manual? So finally I do. Well, you might think that was Uzza, that he just didn't read the instruction manual. But we have very good reason to believe he knew the instruction manual. He knew it well. He knew that God in his word back in Exodus when the ark was established knew that the, the Lord said, put rings on the side of the box, take poles and put the poles through the rings, and the only way the ark will be moved is by carrying it with those poles, and the only people who will carry it are the Levites, and even they are not to touch it. Uzzah knew that, or the text here would not call it an error for which he was judged. Why was the ark bouncing along on a cart? It had no business being on a cart, and Uzzah and Ahio and the others knew it. We wonder whether David knew it. That's an interesting little discussion among the Bible scholars because the fact that David was actually, it says he was angry because the Lord did this, is that, was he angry because he knew that, that he should have known better or maybe he didn't even remember the biblical instruction and, and later figured it out after someone informed him why Uzzah died. Can't settle that one for sure, I don't think. But Uzzah, we believe, 
knew because he's convicted and accused of an error. You say, well, it was still really tough, you know. Couldn't he have been given leprosy or something but spared his life? Yes, indeed, it was a costly lesson. But Uzzah knew better, and that's the point. Now, you might say nothing like this can ever happen in this day and age or in any time since then. But maybe you would go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 29 to 30, where Paul is writing about the abuse of the Lord's Supper and the fact that people were receiving communion and supposedly were conscious of one another and their fellowship, and instead they were behaving with absolute selfishness and me first and me only. And Paul observes there in 1 Corinthians 11, because of this behavior, many among you are sick and some have even died. Whoa. God even gives New Testament worship instructions that he desires to see observed. Now, I've never read anywhere of uh, local police in some community uh, investigating why uh, all the cars in a church parking lot stayed in the parking lot until four in the afternoon, and they went in and found the place full of corpses. I've never heard about that unless it was a gas leak or something, perhaps. And yet, isn't it true that there's an awful lot of worship going on these days that doesn't seem to have a lot to do with God's revealed principles and ways to worship? So he certainly doesn't punish everyone according to this same standard, but he gives us this sobering lesson. God wanted to protect the ark from casual mistreatment because it was such a sacred and unique representation of his sovereignty and his holiness. And he asks us to obey him in the patterns and principles he gives us for worship. He's trying to tell us that worship that only prizes human creativity is not his worship. And if we say, well, our job is just to come up with a lot of do-it-yourself ox carts by which to worship God because we can make forms and patterns and exercises that will be more palatable to the world at large and will draw them in our doors and will get them excited about worship of God. And isn't that a good thing to get more people to come and draw a crowd to hear about Jesus? God says, I've got patterns in mind by which I would have you worship. And in our case, we believe for the Christian church These patterns are primarily the patterns of New Testament worship. It's not the patterns of the Old Testament of bringing sacrifices and bloodletting, you know, and and all of that. The whole sacrificial system has gone away as a pattern because of Christ. Christ superseded it and, and completely obviated the necessity for it anymore. We look to the New Testament church. How did they worship? Well, they taught the Word of God. They prayed. They sang. They brought offerings. We see the things that they did, and we say, these are the patterns that we're going to follow in the Christian church. I believe it was among architects that the saying first emerged. I'm not entirely sure who started this saying that said, God is in the details. God is in the details of worship. He cares about how we worship. Now, there are a lot of human questions that can be decided. What kind of instruments? You know, should we use the exact instruments that David did? Then we better get rid of some of what we've got and get some lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals because that's what was being used here. 
we don't think that's necessarily the instruction we're being given. There are a lot of fine-tuned issues of form and substance in worship that, that we can decide. But the big principles need to be principles that God reveals to us and shows us are the ways that honor Him, not the ways the world says. Why don't you just do it the opposite? Be creative. Make sure it's something beautiful. How about this? How about this? And we could go in all kinds of directions, but it wouldn't be what the Lord asks us to do. Well, secondly, we come here to see that alongside obedience to God in worship, there's this issue of joy, passionate joy demonstrated before the Lord by David. David finally did get it straight, what had happened there, what he had done wrong, and and got the parade going again after three months. And the implication is it was being done the right way because it says those who bore the ark in verse 13. It sounds like it was being carried the correct way now, not on another cart. And the focus then is on what David did as this procession was going along. And it's a, it's a real revelation of the heart of this man. Remember this whole series we're talking about David, the man after God's own heart. A man whose heart was one with God. And here he is throwing off his kingly robe, and he's wearing what's called the ephod, a, a light linen garment that, that had some special implications on, to be used in worship and times of prayer. And David is dancing in abandoned, delirious pleasure with God that this symbol of God's presence is being brought up to his city, the city of the king. He's a man in love with the true God, overwhelmed with the sense of privilege and gratitude and blessing that this God who made the world, this God Jehovah Most High, was his God. You could say David's exuberance meant he was intoxicated, not with wine, but with God and the glories of God. He was completely carried away. Now, I suppose you could say, Pastor, what do you know about being intoxicated with passionate joy in worship? You're a Presbyterian. And certainly we Presbyterians have been known, I think unfairly sometimes, but fairly other times, for the fact that we are at the opposite end of the spectrum of David dancing in, in ecstatic joy like this. What does a guy in a black sober Presbyterian robe know about this kind of ecstasy before God. I've certainly had many people say in different ways over the years to me, not just at this church, but even in earlier times, well, pastor, you know, I liked your church. You had great music, basically, and good sermon, and this and that was fine, but, but you know, your service isn't very joyful. And I say, well, uh, you know, unravel that for me a little bit. What do you mean exactly? What, what, what were you looking for that wasn't joyful? And you know, they, then they start to hedge and hem and haw, and they don't know exactly. But it usually comes down to, well, I wasn't tapping my toe very much with those hymns. And, you know, it just didn't seem like we were bouncing in, in enough enthusiasm. And I say, well, you know, it's very interesting, and I thank you for your comment. I try to be respectful, but I say, I do have to tell you that I was in the same room as you were, and I was delighted in my God the whole time. You can be delighted in God 
without turning somersaults. I love the line in the hymn we sang just before this sermon, the the first line that says, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. What's the best bliss this world has? The Saturday night party atmosphere on a campus or at the local bar where you go in, oh, there's great hilarity and and a lot of noise and a lot of laughter and it seems like everything's really alive and you say, well, is that ever a joyful place? We'll observe the joy of those people as they're sleeping it off on Sunday morning. Somehow it seems like that's a false kind of joy. Uh, how about the hilarity of people who love roller coasters and go on up to Hershey Park? You know, they think they build a new roller coaster every year up there. I don't ride the things, but I hear about them. I, if I did ride them, I would fall flat on the ground and be green when I got off because I, I have a motion sickness issue. But, you know, I know some of you just love, you know, the higher, the more twisty, the more steep, the faster, the better you like it. And, and you watch people with their hair, ah, this is wonderful. And I say, no, thank you. Not wonderful to me. What does it mean to be joyful? in your life? What would be the most joyful thing? Your whole family and all the grandchildren around you in Christmas morning? There's many joyful experiences we can think about. Let me have you think of another preacher from the past who you would think is a very grim guy. If you ever saw pictures of Jonathan Edwards. Now, we don't have photographs, but we have some first-person paintings of Jonathan Edwards. You probably picture him in his white wig and his lips are very mm, straight line, no smile. Maybe he had bad teeth or something, I'm not sure. But Edwards never looks like he's having a great deal of fun. But listen to a couple things this man wrote. A man who, like David, absolutely reveled in God. Edwards wrote on the text, 1 Timothy 1.17, which was his life text. It's a benediction. Now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever. Edwards told about how that text just took hold of him when he was a young man and grabbed his heart. And he said, there rose up in me an absolute sense of the glories of the divine being, and I thought, how sweet and excellent a being this is. And then on another occasion, he talked about Christ and said, the sense I had of my Savior kindled up in me with a burning in my heart. This is a grim Puritan minister, folks, who was delighted in his God. Have you ever known any of that? Have you ever been singing a hymn that took hold of you in such a way that maybe you just couldn't even finish it because emotionally it it took you and just, mm, that's it. That's such a perfect depiction of what I feel about the Lord God, my thanks to Him, my praise to Him. I'm not saying or claiming that we're going to feel that way or sense that every time we worship. Certainly there are times that are quiet, that we worship in quiet satisfaction and we're mentally assenting to what's being said and thank you, Lord, yes. And we don't have to jump out of the pew to demonstrate joy. But I wonder, have you 
experience, what the scripture calls joy unspeakable and full of glory. Have you ever been visited with that at all? And if you never have, I I honestly have to wonder who and what you're worshiping. Because the scripture's God is a God that inspires joy and satisfaction. The Bible calls for a balance between obeying God and having your doctrine right and being emotionally tied up in, in what you're doing. Deep reverence, solemn awe, but hilarious joy can all go together. They seem like they're contradictory. The Bible says no. They come together. They kiss each other in true worship. One of the prophetic books, Minor Prophets, has the image of calves romping in a meadow. That's always very alive to me because we drive down out of our street and right in front of us is an Amish farm and and the calf meadow is right there. And my wife's smiling because she she loves the calves. She wants to go over and make pets of them and bring one home and raise it in the family room, you know, and all that. But... (laughs) But we love to see the calves because they chase each other. You know, there's maybe 10 of them, and they're just running pell-mell, chasing each other. Now, the older cows, you know, they just stand there and go, did we ever do that, Mildred? I don't think so, you know. But the calves are leaping and jumping and running, and the, the Bible says, let your joy in the Lord be like calves released from the pen. What a great image. The satisfaction of knowing God brings us to be able to rejoice and nevertheless tremble with awe before God. Now thirdly, a quick final point here, and it's not very long. But an instruction falls here for us to see this too. That we worship before an audience of one. Remember a little bit perhaps about David's wife, Michael, spelled the same as my name but without an E. And uh, once knew a woman with that name. I've only known one in all my lifetime. Uh, She was the daughter of Saul, David's first wife. Saul took her away and let her be married to someone else. Then David demanded her back. Well, it seems like the reunion didn't work out so great. I don't think love was ever really rekindled between the two of them. Michael's watching from the palace window, her husband coming along, dancing, looking like a crazy man. And boy, has she ready to scorch him when he walks in the door. What a spectacle you made of yourself today. What kind of a king are you? Why, the the young girls were ashamed to see your behavior. And notice David's answer here in verses 21 and 22. He says, you know, he doesn't heavily scorn her back, but he says, I will celebrate before the Lord And if that requires me to be more undignified still, I'll do it if I must. You see, Michael was the kind of king's wife who had her hair permed three times a week and no hair ever moved out of place. And she shopped at Saks Fifth Avenue, never even knew what the inside of a Kmart looked like. And she was perfect on appearances. Why? Because her father Saul had had that value all his life. If you go back and study Saul, what mattered to him most of anything was, what does this look like? How do I look before everybody? That's what he cared about. Not, did I please God? How does this look and how does it make me appear? So Michael, his daughter, had the same value. Just look at what you appear to be like, David. And David said, I don't care a cake of raisins for what I look like. What I care about is the one audience 
before whom I'm worshiping, my God and King. An audience of one. You know, it's so easy in this day and age to think that worship is just a ball of clay and we can shape it, and and one of the main ways in which we should shape it would be dependent on what the world wants. And one of the fundamental mistakes that churches make is when they say we've got to somehow get folks from the world into our sanctuaries. What is it they want anyway? Entertainment, big-name singers, something very rousing and loud, whatever. What do they want? Let's shape our worship to be what they want, and they'll come in, and then we'll be able to give them God's good gospel. Well, the Scripture, I think, implies that you can sell the farm that way without knowing it. You come to a passage like 1 Corinthians 14, and I end here, which is talking about this very thing. The church is worshiping in true worship, in passionate worship, and the unbeliever comes in the door. And here's what 1 Corinthians 14.25 says ought to happen. The unbeliever will enter the assembly of the saints worshiping God in biblical ways, and the secrets of his heart will be exposed, and he will be convicted and worship God as he says this, God is really here. Not in a golden box, but in the exaltation of Jesus Christ and the knowledge of God's Word by the Holy Spirit. God will really be here. I pray that we all have hearts that want to obey God in worship, but don't do it with Michael's form of, let's have all our P's and Q's in place and make sure we don't step out of line because it's not only important to obey God, It's important to seek him with the passion and the joy of all our hearts so that we might fulfill what Charles Wesley was writing about when he said, change from glory into glory until in heaven we take our place, until we cast, he was talking about our final worship, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Can we taste that even today? I believe we can, for the glory of God. Father, our worship is all imperfect. We do not have a corner on how to do it right. Forgive our arrogance in any way. Keep teaching us the principles that we need to follow. And warm our hearts, strike a flame in us that with holy joy, like the calves leaping in the meadow, we would be desiring to be in your presence, to thank you and praise you and glorify you. All for Jesus' sake. Amen.